Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. I am your host, Arden Castle, and this week's episode comes from our People and Places collection. If you love visuals, I suggest checking out our YouTube channel for the video version of this interview. Enjoy! Hello and welcome. This is Health Promotion Practices author interviews and my name is Arden Castle. Each episode we will explore a recently published article and its author. This week I'm joined by Cynthia Begay, author of Cigarette and E-Cigarette Retail Marketing on and near tribal lands, which was published in January 2020. This episode is focused on how her paper connects to the larger public health field, which is just one part of a three-part series with Cynthia Begay. Tune into our other episodes to hear more about her and our other authors. You have recently published an article in Health Promotion Practices Journal titled Cigarette and E-Cigarette Retail Marketing on and Near Tribal Lands. So can you kind of get into what prompted the research and what the gap was that you were hoping to fill by doing this study? Yeah, so I think for me, my joining the project actually happened right when the data collection was beginning. So I really want to commend, you know, Dr. Soto, who I mentioned is my now mentor. I was a master's student at the time and just started working with her when the project kicked off for the data collection. But she really recognized that, you know, we really didn't have any, any project like this in California where we we're looking at the policy level we're working with tribal communities and their governments to see just like how is policy landing on our communities she has been working in tobacco control, I believe, 20 years. And so it was more of uh, working directly with the folks, doing tobacco prevention curriculum and things like that. So when she saw this opportunity where they were visiting, I believe, five other communities in Los Angeles County to look at how policy has impacted those specific racial and ethnic communities, she really came up to the forefront and advocated for our communities to reach all, the, all of our tribal communities throughout the state, which is you know, no easy feat and to a funder's eyes could be very expensive, but it's very needed. So I was just really happy that I was brought onto a project that had already started in this way. And so for me, I feel like that was, I was a resource to her because I had these long lasting relationships in San Diego County where you know, I did work in the urban areas at a couple of community-based orgs. I did work at an Indian health clinic on the reservation with nine other tribes. And it was helpful for her too, to have me kind of identify where are these community-based artists we should talk to, who are the tribal leaders that can help get folks on board with our study. So that was, that was my role in it. And I was really happy to visit all the tribal communities I did while I was doing the data collection for two years. It sounds like you were really an asset in connecting with those particular communities. And going back to the need for the study, was it in response to a particular policy that was being passed that really showed this gap that your mentor wanted to address? Yeah, so the larger project was in response to the 2009 Family Tobacco Control Act that the Obama administration had signed in. And part of that act was giving FDA the authority to regulate tobacco products. And so we had, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think like who was regulating tobacco products before 2009, but now we have the Family Tobacco Control Act who was doing this. And so some of the legwork we did before we did data collection, or I should say the team did, was looking at how is communication happening? Everybody else is being notified of FDA's 
regulations and soon to be auditing. That's the other part of the project, which is why we did the observational surveys was FDA said, we're going to come in and we're going to start auditing. They have some certain regulations that tobacco advertising can't be any lower than three feet from the ground. Why? Because little kids are running around and that's their line of view. And you can't display tobacco products next to candy and they have to be behind the counter, things like that. So we want to make sure, you know, even though we don't want folks putting themselves at risk for tobacco-related illness, we also don't want our communities being audited, fined, potentially ultimately being shut down if they're not properly informed of these regulations and, and, and future audits. And so that's why I think Dr. Soto really thought this work was needed is because we don't know how our communities are being communicated with. I don't think the U.S. government has a great track record of reaching our communities. And we just really want to make sure that our communities have all the resources that they need to abide by these things when the time comes. And so I think that was really important part of the groundwork for it and the gap. Because like I said, we really hadn't seen any type of study like this in California that was addressing these issues. Definitely. And it is kind of scary to think what kind of regulation was happening prior to you. But I'm kind of curious after your work in, in doing the audits yourselves, or at least these observations, what kind of programming are tribes doing now to address smoking? So there's, there's a lot going on. I think the work had started before the project and the work continues after. But I know Dr. Soto, she's been involved with CTCP, which I'd have to look up the acronym. I think it's California Tobacco Community Programs, but CTCP is the acronym and they do a lot of tobacco funding. And so right now they've issued several grants to tribal communities to implement their own anti-smoking campaigns. And so her work behind the scenes was interviewing different tribal governments not really in related to this project that the paper is written about, but it's all related in terms of tobacco control. So she, and I helped a little bit with this part too, had done focus groups with different tribal communities to see, you know, how ready are communities to implement their own kind of policy system and environmental change grant? How can they kind of take autonomy of their own tobacco control? And so she did that work, she informed the state, and now the state has released these RFPs to the tribes, several tribes have been funded already, and I'm really fortunate to work with, with the tribe in Southern California on their PSE grant. And they're doing really amazing things like um, doing youth-led coalition building and having the youth lead an anti-tobacco campaign where they're going to do non-smoking policies. Hopefully within five years, make the whole tribal community a smoke-free community. And another aspect of that program is to have their tribal government pass an excise tax, which is really awesome. So I just really enjoy the applied part of this. And I am playing a small part, a small role in that, that part as a program evaluator, but it is really refreshing to see, hopefully this project has informed these subsequent projects. And if not, maybe an article like this can lend itself to part of the literature review to have that like to stand on and why this is so important. I definitely agree that whether this is the reason why or just helping build the case, it's really exciting to see that the changes are being made. I know that we kind of talked about the role of, of policy change and when we think about moving upstream generally in public health, we talk about 
like federal level policies to impact the largest amount of people possible as kind of like the highest upstream position we can go. But given that state laws don't apply to tribal lands, what is actionable and how should public health researchers be approaching upstream solutions within tribal lands? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, I think, because, you know, if you do have the goal of going the federal route, it's kind of a catch-all. <laughs> so if I get this one thing done, then I can cast this wide net. And like I mentioned before, we have 109 federally recognized tribes in California. So as a researcher, it's like, do I have to go to all 109 tribal governments to get everybody on board? And the short answer is yeah, <laughs> because we have to recognize their sovereignty. But I think that the good part is, is there's also, at least in California, I can, I can only speak to that because that's where my experience has been so far, that there are larger hubs that are kind of like a consortium where, where tribes really work together in certain spaces. So for instance, I'm a technical advisor to the California Tribal Epidemiology Center, which is part of the California Rural Indian Health Board, and that's called CRIB for short. And CRIB has a consortium of, I think, 22 tribal clinics that are in the area. And so through entities like that, if you really wanted to convey tobacco control policies or tobacco control education, you can use those kind of vehicles to reach broader communities. And I think, again, it's, it's really about building trust in communities. And that's another way or strategic way to reach more communities and kind of go the upstream way that you're discussing. But we do, we do lean on folks like that a lot. The urban counterpart to that is the California Consortium of Urban Indian Health, or SACUI for short, and then they work with the urban Indian clinics, and there's one right here in Los Angeles. So working between those two entities, and then there's also different hubs, like I talked about with the Chairman's Association. So that is another way to reach more tribal communities, but... At the end of the day, having to respect if a, tri a tribe is, is going to do what they need to do for their people too. So we kind of do the best we can in reaching as many, many folks and as many tribes as possible. I like that you end with that thought that even if, you know, we need to go out individually to each of these 109 tribes or the fact that this infrastructure or these community groups already exist that they still have at the end of the day control over what they want to do and, and that we have to respect that. But that we can build these lifelong relationships with these folks and create relationships to try and do what we can as researchers. I, I really like that. Going off of that, thinking about each of these individual tribes that we'd wanna communicate with. In your paper, you state that California tribal lands are geographically remote with some tribal communities hours from an urban city. This was a challenge because recruitment included making several trips to meet the tribe and or community members for permission. So how do researchers navigate these barriers and continue to build these relationships with tribal members? Yeah, it, it was very challenging at times. I think even from what I was talking about in my last answer is reaching all the communities. Some things that deter most people from even representing our communities are the small numbers. Even in urban settings, you know, oh, like we're, we're either represented as an other category or just not reported on at all. And so I think that's where people get hyper-focused on. It's like, why would I want to visit this community of 2,000 people and drive three hours one way to get there for one liquor store or, you know, our one gas station and do this interview? Because one of the times I remember we went 
out to the community. It did take a few hours one way to get there. We wanted to do the interview and the store was way too busy. You know, it was just a busy time. The one person at the cash register didn't have time to step aside for 20, 30 minutes to do our interview. And because the other thing too is we're doing an observational survey and folks that may seem a little intrusive, right? Like, oh, you're coming into my store to look at where things are placed. And you really have to get them to understand too, like we're not FDA, you're not actually getting audited. This information is being reported in aggregate. We're not going to name you, you know, alone or anything like that. And so all of that stuff takes time. And so when somebody's very busy and inundated with work and can't do that interview, that's where we have to also be respectful of that. So there were a few instances like that. I think we did our best to, to look at the tobacco licensing registry and we looked at their address to see if they were on tribal lands. And so sometimes too, we would drive out and then the business wouldn't be there anymore. They were out of business or things like that. So we had issues like that. Another part of the data collection too was, and, and will resonate now is all the wildfires. And we saw Northern California pretty much up in flames. And so think about the tribal communities who have one road in and out, you know, and then that fire disrupts that road and then there's no detour. Or us as researchers, is it even safe to drive up there or fly out there to do these interviews? And so sometimes we had delays like that. Another issue too is flooding. I remember there was big rainstorms of flooding that had cut off some of the access roads out there. So those are just a lot of things we had to consider in data collection. And the nice thing was, was all five of us who were data collectors are native. So, you know, we all had our own relationships with the communities that we were bridging. And so it was easier for us to identify those things, but I really wonder for a researcher who's not from any native community, how hard it would be to figure out those things or even project how long will data collection take? Because even though we got, I believe a hundred surveys, I mean, it took two years. <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, it's just a lot to consider. Definitely, and it sounds like the strength of having an interdisciplinary team that's able to have that foresight and then not trying to rush the process, acknowledging that it's gonna take time and being okay with that and, and that it's about this long-term commitment and relationship with these folks and not just dropping in for that data. And thinking about how long that took, do you have any goals for the field or your own professional development in the next five years? Yeah, so I think even just like thinking about right now, my answer is about how I'm still working in tobacco control because I think of myself not really working in tobacco control anymore because in school, the main project that I'm working on and hopefully will be for my dissertation is colorectal cancer screening, treatment rates, things like that, but colorectal cancer among American Indian communities in California and so that to me is a big shift from tobacco policy and now looking at colorectal cancer but I know I still do some of the work as a program evaluator for the tobacco program I just discussed. I am also with my mentor Dr. Soto working on an opioid needs assessment or um, tribal medicated assisted treatment project and we did a statewide interviews with Native Americans experiencing homelessness and how they access those treatments. So still working in communities, still working in different topics, but I know over the next five years, at least the next three will be finishing up this PhD program, 
looking at colorectal cancer through the California Cancer Registry. I'm really interested in how to apply spatial sciences to that. So kind of like how you mentioned with my paper, we highlight some communities are very rural. And so what does that mean for healthcare access? And I kind of think about it too. It's like, depending on who you are, you're accessing a different healthcare system, unfortunately. And so for our folks in these tribal communities, especially thinking about rural communities in Northern California, what resources do those clinics have? Can they do colorectal cancer screenings? Once you get diagnosed, what does treatment look like? We had discussed with one tribe about how their insurance kind of like, you know, when you have your insurance and they have your in-network specialty care, how do they determine that? Well, for this particular tribe, Indian Health Service had determined it by mileage. So they said, well, this city is 60 miles from you, so that's where you're going to receive cancer treatment. Well, those 60 miles take six hours to travel because they have to clear a whole mountain range. Whereas the next major city, which is where most people end up going, is 200 miles away, but you know, only takes a few hours to get there. So some tribal members there having to decide, like, do I take the six-hour trip to get my treatment and get it covered? Or am I going to take a couple hours out of network and do it this route? Or do I just not go at all? And so with the colorectal cancer, I'm just starting in that field. So I am still learning a lot about it. But one of the things I really like from one of my other committee members, Dr. Miles Coburn, is just what are the viable solutions to whatever we come up with. And so with colorectal cancer screening, there's ways to do remote screening. And so how are we going to increase access to rural communities? And then with the spatial sciences piece, looking at hopefully to map how close are treatment centers for colorectal cancer to these tribal communities or wherever the hot spots are for colorectal cancer incidents in California. So again, like I'm just starting, but I really want to include these different pieces in there because just even seeing geographically like where cancer incidence is, is going to be really revealing. And then looking at proximity of not only mileage, but travel time. Like I mentioned too, with like the wildfires and things like that, there's so many things that can become a big barrier for access to care. And so that at least, that's what I hope to do with my dissertation. And that's kind of the direction I'm going in. Excellent. And I think that that's going to be a really exciting dissertation. And I think it's going to be interesting to look at spatially. Like you said, maybe it's not necessarily miles, but it's the time that it takes to get two different places and how that affects access and how that affects quality of care and insurance and the burdens that come along with that. So I think that that is definitely a gap that needs acknowledging. Yeah, I think Dr. Coburn's work in LA, that's where kind of our interests combined was he does a lot of work here in Los Angeles. So if you can imagine driving to downtown at 8 a.m., your travel time may look a lot different than driving to downtown at 8 p.m. And so really looking at the mileage and then versus travel time is a really big issue. And I mean, California is a huge state. So <laughs> it looks different all over. I, I think we're like several states in one. <laughs> I agree. It's definitely plenty to work with. And I'm thinking kind of in terms of whether it relates to community-based participatory research or working with tribal communities. If someone wanted to teach your paper or apply your work, what might that look like? Yeah, so I think with my paper, I would hope when they teach it, it really would lend itself to highlighting the intersectionality 
Like I mentioned in a few of my other responses, it's talking about tobacco control and how important that is, but also honoring tribal sovereignty and really honoring how many different communities or tribal communities are here in California and how do you communicate those recommendations? Because like I said, it is a, it is a really hard thing to, I guess, wrap our heads around when we're like, tobacco is bad, tobacco is going to cause these health disparities, but then there's so many other layers to why they may, they may still need to sell tobacco or have those smoking areas and casinos and things like that. So I would hope that, you know, if my paper is used to be taught, it's to highlight the intersectionality. Just, I guess with the paper too, there's always so much you want to say in a paper and then sometimes you have word limits, but I know another thing that I don't think was published in this paper was looking at the nuances between tribal regulation of tobacco too. And so some of the tribally manufactured tobacco products aren't seen in the general population. And then we were wondering too, like, oh, why did that happen? Or why are these different nuances? So just really recognizing it's a different, a different dynamic than tobacco retail policy in the city. And hopefully our paper sheds light on that and whoever teaches this topic and uses a paper will be able to explain those issues. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that your paper is very nuanced and there are a lot of different pieces that we could take out, but I agree looking at the intersectionality and that there are so many different factors and parts that contribute to smoking and the type of smoking that's going on in these communities. Did you have any parting thoughts on your work and COVID-19, kind of thinking about where we are in time and place and any concerns or new action items for the future? Yeah, so in terms of tobacco policy and COVID, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but I think when it comes to just cancer control in general with COVID-19, I know the general population has really cut down on cancer screenings. And I would think that there's even a higher rate of that on tribal lands. And so when we think about just how inundated healthcare workers have been trying to address COVID, thinking about tribal communities and how inundated they must be in trying to address this and how there's already lack of resources for cancer screenings. And I think folks in general are worried about contracting COVID, even trying to get their screening. And so how do we flip that script? and make sure folks are still getting screened. And then people who are currently dealing with treatment, these are folks who are at high risk. And so what does getting cancer care treatment look like for them? And thinking about for our communities, we have a lot of multi-generational households. So you may have somebody from a vulnerable population like folks diagnosed with cancer, and then you may have their parents in the household who are older folks. And so I think with COVID and cancer control, that's my biggest concern is yet another barrier to screening, but then also what are folks doing for their cancer care treatment right now? Definitely. I think that there are a lot of new challenges that COVID is bringing up and connecting back to access to care, how people are accessing it, and, and like you said, multi-generational households, the things that are putting folks at risk and how are they able to navigate those in the community. I just want to say thank you, Cynthia, for joining us today, and thank you all for listening in. If you'd like to find out more about our guest this week, you can reach her here. And as always, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook for more author interviews. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.